We will be reading um, all of Luke 15 today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there is a man who has two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that time is mine, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost 
and is found. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Caleb. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Providence, and it is a, a great joy to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, before we dive in, though, would you just would you pray with me uh, real quick? Um, Father, we come before you and acknowledge that it is an awe-inspiring thing to be in your presence, to, to stand, to sing before the king of the universe. And we ask that your words this morning would penetrate our hearts, that you would, you would simultaneously convict us and, and declare your great love for us. Father, I ask for me. Also, I ask that you would take these, these reflections, these feeble words, that you would infuse them with your power so that you and you alone would be glorified. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Back during World War II, uh, there was a guy named Paul Harvey who began uh, doing a radio program called The Rest of the Story. And during these short three to four minute segments, he would tell a story. Uh, these would be simple, seemingly mundane tales that all had something in common. They would be missing a key fact or detail that he would hold back till the very end. And when he finally told you who the skinny kid was or what date in history he was talking about, it would completely change how you saw the story. And he would end every segment with, and now you know the rest of the story. Well, today, uh, we are going to look at the rest of a story that you probably know pretty well. It's the story of a, a wayward son and a, a loving father who welcomes him back with open arms. It's a story that encapsulates the beauty of God's love for sinners. However, there is a key detail to this story that we tend to overlook, and, and in doing so, it keeps us from, from seeing the true significance of this story. And so as we continue our series through the Gospel of Luke, I want us to figure out what the rest of the story is. Why does Jesus tell us the tales that he does in Luke 15, and what are we supposed to do with it? And so from our text, I want us to make three movements. I want us to look at the story, the missing piece, and the point. Now our text this morning is really a masterful response to what was happening around Jesus. See, Jesus never told a story just to tell a story. It was always in response to what was happening around him. And in this case, he is responding to the Pharisees and scribes. The opening verses of our text tell us that Jesus was spending time with sinners. He was eating with tax collectors, which was how you showed in the first century that you were loved and accepted. And, and, and this is really bothering the Pharisees and scribes because Jesus is accepting people that he ought not to be accepting. They are sinners, after all. Now, I don't know what pops into your head when you hear the term sinner, but what popped into their mind was someone who had chosen a lifestyle that was unfaithful to God's law, and therefore they, they had rejected any relationship with God and the benefits that might ensue. And no one exemplified the sinner's lifestyle more than a tax collector. 
Now, I don't know a lot of people that are fans of the IRS. I have yet to meet someone that enjoys paying taxes. But first century tax collectors really took it to another level. Uh, see, Rome was quite large, and they, were, uh, they would frequently tax the, the citizens of their country, their nation. But rather than sending out agents from the capital, they would outsource it. They would hire locals in the region to collect taxes for them. As long as they did that, as long as they collected the required taxes, they would turn a blind eye to the exorbitant service fees that would be charged. And so tax collectors were doubly hated, not just because they had a reputation of extorting their fellow countrymen, but for being in league with the enemy, with the Romans. And so the Pharisees see Jesus slumming it with the riffraff, and they are audibly displeased and dismayed as to why Jesus would do this. And so Jesus explains to them why he keeps the company he does with not one, not two, but three linked stories. Now, stories one and two are, are, are almost identical uh, except for the presenting problem. In the first story, a sheep is lost. In the second story, a coin is lost. And that's really where the differences end. In both stories, something is lost. In both stories, someone goes out and diligently searches for the lost thing. And once it's found, there's a celebration, a party to end all parties. And Jesus takes these qualities of the searcher in the first two stories, and he puts flesh on it in the final tale. He tells us that there was a father who had two sons. And one day, the younger son comes up to the father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Now, he doesn't actually say that. What he says is, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. But think about it. When do you get an inheritance? When the person has died. And so, in effect, he's coming up to his father and saying, I want your stuff so much that I wish you would just go ahead and die so I can have it. It would be a shocking statement in an honor-shame culture like the first century. But what's even more shocking is the father does what the son asked him to do. And remember, this is the first century. He couldn't just cut a check and hand it to the son and send him on his merry way. All the father's money was tied up in land and livestock. So it would have taken a while to liquidate those assets. And can you imagine the dinners after that conversation? I would not want to be there. But, but eventually the father accumulates enough to hand the money to the younger son, and he is gone. He goes on his way, and he squanders it, doing whatever strikes his fancy, until he runs out of money, and he eventually hits rock bottom. And he realizes what a mess he's made of his life. And so he begins to think and to concoct a way to get out. Maybe, maybe he can go work for his father. Uh, not, a, not as a son, but maybe, maybe as a servant, he can, he can pay back, he can make right all the damage and wrongs that he has done. And with this restoration plan in mind, he heads back home. But he never gets a chance to present it because as soon as the father sees him, he comes racing out to embrace his son, to welcome him back. And he celebrates his return with the party of a century. And he does this because his son who was lost is now found. The son that he thought was dead is alive. And that's why Jesus sits with sinners because he's on a mission to bring them back to God. These stories show us God's heartbeat to save sinners, those who are separated from him. 
And Jesus is the great initiative to bring that about. But remember, there, there's a piece to this story, a piece that, that Jesus has withheld to the very end. It does change things. And Luke actually hints at it right in the beginning when he tells us in verses 2 and 3 who Jesus is talking to. See, Jesus is not talking to the tax collectors and sinners. He tells these stories for the benefit of the Pharisees and scribes. And after telling them what God is like and showing them how he responds to sinners, to the younger brother types, he drops the bomb on them. There is not one prodigal son in this story. There are two. The older brother and those he represents are just as lost as the younger one. That's the missing piece. Now, you might be wondering, how can we say that? I mean, after all, the older brother did not run off. He did not squander his father's wealth. He faithfully served his father. So how can we say that he's lost, alienated from the father who literally lives under the same roof as him? Well, the text gives us a couple of clues that this is the case. The first clue is that Jesus doesn't end the story at verse 24. He keeps going to tell us about the older brother who comes home and finds a party being thrown for the wayward son. And there are subtle cultural hints in the text, like the fact that he refuses to go into the party or the way he refers to his father. But the, the real clincher, the real proof, is his response to his father's invitation in verses 29 and 30. Look what he says. Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours came, the, the one who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now think about it. What does the older brother want? He wants his father's wealth. He wants the exact same thing that the younger brother does. See, both sons are alienated from the father. They are both lost, and they both want the same thing. They just choose very different ways to try and get it. And what this reveals to us is that both ways that we typically relate to God are broken. See, there's really only two ways that people try and relate to God. The first is called antinomianism. Now, that is a big word, but it's not one that you should be afraid of. Uh, it, it comes from two Greek words, uh, anti, meaning against, and nomos, which means law. And, and, and so these are the people who think that if it feels good, do it, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And, and so in this case, an antinomian is someone who hears God's laws, that we are to love our neighbor, to remain chaste, until marriage and be faithful to our spouse after marriage. We're, we're not to lie. We're to deal honestly. We're to care for the poor among us, etc. And they say, no, that's not for me. I'm going to go do my own thing. And this is exactly what the younger brother does, isn't it? He says, I want nothing to do with you, Father. I want nothing to do with your ways. I'm going to do, go do my own thing. How'd that work out for him? His life's a wreck. It's unsatisfying, and, and he can see that he's made a mess of things. And, and the older brother types can see that too, and they think they've figured it out. See, in the other camp, the other way of relating to God, we have what we could call legalists. 
uh, which means that they are concerned with keeping the rules and laws, which is exactly what the Pharisees were all about. Now, if you spent any time in church, you have been conditioned to see the Pharisees as the embodiment of evil. Uh, but, but if a legalist is someone who encounters God's laws and seeks to obey them, which is what the older brother does in the story, it's what the Pharisees were trying to do in real life, then surely they can't be alienated from God. It sounds like they are doing all the right things. But the older brothers are lost too. But, but whereas the, the younger brother's lostness is quite obvious, I mean, he's eating pig slop. The older brother's lostness is far more subtle. But if you look, you look closely at his life in these verses, you can start to see that his life is marked by a few things that shows his true state. His life is marked by anger. Notice that, that he is angry that the father slaughtered the, the fattened calf, which was like the equivalent of a four-course meal. It was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And he did it for the younger brother. But what he's really angry about is not that the father slaughtered the calf. It's that he didn't slaughter the calf for him. After all, he was the obedient son. He was the one who faithfully served his father. And what did he get? Nothing. He didn't get a fattened calf. He didn't even get a small goat, which was the first century equivalent to a, a drive through cheeseburger. He's the one who deserved the party. He's the one who deserved the attention and praise, and he is angry that he didn't get it. And by the way, this is typically when older brother types have younger brother flare-ups. They have done a really good job, maybe for years devoted themselves to keeping the rules, but whenever it doesn't pan out the way they want, whenever they don't get the reward they think they deserve, then a little younger brother tendency creeps in. A little rebellion takes place where they try and go take that, some, that thing that they want. They indulge a little, and they justify it by saying, look at all that I have done. Surely this one thing is okay. And all that stems from our anger at being cheated out of what we deserve. And so his life is marked by anger. It's also marked by joyless obedience. Notice how he describes uh, his actions toward the Father. It says, I served you. It's actually much stronger than that. It's, I slaved for you. And I think what he's trying to say is well summed up in how uh, a child's work ethic typically plays out. Because there's really only two reasons that like, children do chores. Right? E either, A, they do it because they love their parents who asked them to do it, which is like, what we'd like to think. But let's be honest, the reason they really do it is because they either want something from us or they want to avoid getting in trouble. <laughs> Right? And so doing, and so they don't want to do the chores, but, but the chores are the only path that leads to what they actually want. And so, yes, they are obedient. They slodge through, but they do so half-heartedly, joylessly, sometimes even resentfully. They do, and, and that's how the older brother types go about their, their obedience. Yes, they are doing the right things, but they do so out of fear and resentment, just, just trying to avoid punishment and maybe they'll get something good out of it. And so his life is marked by anger, joyless obedience, and by a sense of superiority. Notice how he compares his actions to the actions of that son of yours. He won't even put himself in the same category. 
because he would never, ever have disobeyed in the same way. And, and he has to assume that air of superiority because his actions are what established that he matters. This is what establishes his significance and his worth. And, and, and what that does, the side effect, is it makes him callous and judgmental toward everyone else. It makes him incapable of, of understanding the father's love and forgiveness. See, while the older brother is, is doing everything right, the evidence in his life reveals that he's doing everything right for the wrong reasons. He's not doing it because he loves his father. He's doing it because he's alienated from him. Now, you, you, you might think that, that these two types, legalism and antinomialism, are, are opposite ends of the spectrum, and, and that we just kind of need to like, balance them out and move more into the middle. Right? Like, like uh, the antinomian types, they need, to, they need to take God's laws a little more seriously, and, and the legalists need to just lighten up and remember that God loves you just the way you are. We need to get to the center. But these are, are not two things to be balanced. Legalism and antinomianism are actually fraternal twins. See, they, they are both birthed from the same root problem, the same problem that has plagued us since Adam and Eve. Ever since the serpent came to Eve in Genesis 3, we have, we have been convinced that God cannot be trusted, that God is withholding the best parts of life from me. He doesn't really want me to have a flourishing life. And that, that thing that will make me whole and complete, uh, that thing that will give my life meaning and purpose and happiness, God doesn't want me to have it. And, and it's this core conviction that prompts us to respond either as a younger brother or as an older brother. See, it's the belief that God cannot be trusted that causes the, the, the younger brother types to just reject everything that God has said and go out and try to grab the life that they want. And it's the belief that God doesn't want what's best for me that drives the older brother types to obey all of God's commands in an attempt to put God in our debt, to pry open his stingy hand and take what we really want out of life. Did you see, it, it all flows out of a poisoned heart that believes that God cannot be trusted, that he doesn't have your well-being in mind. Therefore, we need to bring about a flourishing life on our own merits. See, we, we tend to think that, that Jesus is telling this story to obvious trespassers, but this is really a story about all of us. And please hear me, whether you are bad or you are very good, all of us are alienated from the Father. Even if you are an older brother type, even if your life might not look as bad as the younger brothers, you are just as bad off. I am just as bad off. And that, that's, that's the missing piece to this story. But unlike Paul Harvey's stories, it doesn't actually change the point of this story. Rather, it just magnifies its brilliance. See, Jesus didn't tell this story so that, that he could stand up and inform everyone that they are all evil and there is no hope. Thank you. you know, he, he tells us this so that we might see that there is a third way to relate to God. And this third way starts with the Father. 
And did, did you notice that, that with both the younger and the older brother, it, it, the father goes out. The, the father initiates. He doesn't wait for them to come tail between their legs. He doesn't wait for them to repent of their wrongdoing, to, to pay back all the wrongs. His love for them causes him to take the initiative. But such an initiative really doesn't do any good unless someone's willing to accept it. I mean, remember, our main problem is that we don't trust God. We don't think that he has what's best in mind for us. And so sure, he might be coming arms outstretched, but in the back of our mind, we think he's got a dagger in the hand and gonna stab us in the back when we least expect it. And so we can't just see the Father's loving initiative. We also have to see what it costs him to bring us home. And to really get at that, we need the other two parables. Um, you know, there are a lot of obvious similarities between the first two parables and this third parable. But there is one noticeable contrast, and that is that mm, there's no seeker in the third story. In the first story, someone goes out and diligently searches for the lost sheep. In the second story, someone diligently searches for the coin. But when we get to the story of the prodigal sons, no one's going out and searching for the younger brother. And that's not an omission. It's an indication that something is off. Do you know whose responsibility it was in the first century to go seeking out the younger brother? It was the older one. He was to be the key reconciler in situations like this. He was the one who was supposed to absorb any expense, any loss, in order to bring the wayward son home. But we don't have that in this story, do we? We have an older brother who has no interest in that. He has no desire to suffer loss for the sake of his lost brother. And it seems like Jesus is using this selfish older brother to cause his hearers to long for a true older brother. One who would seek them out, one who would pay the cost and suffer the loss so that they might receive mercy and forgiveness. And that is exactly what we have in Jesus. Turn over in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 10 and 11. Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. See, God the Father, in order to bring many sons, many daughters back to him, sent out Jesus. Jesus, who endured the cost of our rebellion, he, he shouldered our alienation, he suffered more immensely than we can comprehend. And why did he do that? Why would Jesus endure such suffering and loss for us? Because he was not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, so that he could lead us home to the Father. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 3, look, behold the, the lavish love that God has lavished on us, 
that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And, and when, we, when we see this selfless love displayed in Jesus, it, it destroys our mistrust of God. When we look at the lengths that he went, the price that he paid, the losses that he suffered to bring us back, it eradicates our suspicion of God that would lead us to be a younger brother or an older brother. That's the point of these stories. That's why, why Jesus keeps hanging out with obvious sinners. That's why Jesus keeps engaging the Pharisees and poking at their lostness so that they might see God's loving initiative to bring both types back to him. And so where do we go from here? Well, you'll notice that the, the final story doesn't really have an ending. We don't know if the older brother accepts the loving initiative of the father or if he storms off and refuses to go to the party. And that's because we are invited to complete the story in our own lives. There is no doubt that, that some here this morning would fall into the younger brother camp. Uh, you have been attempting to be Lord of your life. You have been doing whatever was right in your eyes, ignoring God's instructions. But if you're honest, that's not really working out for you. There is a, a hollowness to your life, an, an emptiness that, that you're trying to fill. Or maybe, maybe it's actually progressed farther than that. Maybe, if you're honest, your life is in shambles. This story invites us to repent of our wrongdoing, to repent of our attempts to be Lord of our lives and to come home. Jesus has made the way for you. Repent and accept the grace and mercy and forgiveness that cost him everything. And he extends to you for nothing. The application is similar for those of us who identify more with the older brother. Um, Though our list of sins might not be as long, it actually might, might be non-existent, we still need to repent. See, these stories show us that we don't just need to repent of our wrong choices. We also need to repent of the reasons we made the right choices. What was keeping the older brother from the father wasn't his bad deeds. It was his good ones the things that he felt justified himself, that had put his father in his debt. And we have to repent of those too. We have to repent of our attempts to control God by being good. And both of those are only possible if we turn to Jesus, if we trust his goodness, his care, his love, and his acceptance of us. So brothers and sisters, whether you are an, a younger brother type or an older brother type, we are all lost brother types. You know, it's only when we see the Father's initiative played out in Jesus that we can finally come home. And now we know the rest of the story. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your amazing love that you have showered upon us in Jesus, that while we were still sinners, while we were far from you, alienated from you, your enemies, you sent Jesus to die in our place, all as a demonstration of your great love for us. We thank you and we praise you for that, Father. And we confess, I confess, how frequently 
uh, I, we relate to you as one of the brothers. Whether we just blatantly ignore what you have said is good for us, or we attempt to manipulate and control you to do what we think is best. Father, forgive us. Would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see your great love for us, that you mean only good for us. Would you help us to see, behold, grasp your loving initiative in Jesus? Walk before you in that light. Even now, Father, as we sing your praises about how it is not I, but Christ in me, Father, would we be knocked over afresh at your love and provision for us. We ask this 